So if you would take your Bibles and turn for the last time to the book of Hebrews, um, officially for the last time, of course we'll have occasion to look at Hebrews many times in the future, I'm sure. Uh, We are concluding our grand study in this book this morning, uh, Lord willing. It is bittersweet, bitter in that we should leave such a, a great book with rich and practical doctrine Uh, That has no doubt spoken to us many times already, Uh, but uh, sweet in that we move on uh, to to other things in the Word of God. We are to preach the whole council, so I'm excited to uh, begin the book of Ecclesiastes with you in a couple of weeks. So having said that, uh, we are in the book of Hebrews. We're looking at verses 22 to 25. This is the last portion of the book. And uh, it is, as I say, a book that is so very practical, magnificent theological work, so timely for the Church of God. But what we have before us is what many commentators categorize as the postscript, uh, which we uh, know well uh, in abbreviated form as PS. PS, that's right, the letter has a PS to it, and this is it, the postscript. Um, These are his parting words to the church. It's a way to sign off uh, that was actually very common in letter writing in the first century. We see the same practice in Paul, in Peter, in John. And really, we're no strangers to this practice ourselves. Uh, It was very common, a common way to to end letters um, for a long time in this country, to pen a PS at the end or at the bottom of our letter especially people who actually wrote letters, um, uh, but also typed them. It's for leaving the reader with some parting words that we think are important, that we didn't put in the body of the letter for one reason or another. Perhaps we're putting it here for emphasis, unless, of course, it's an afterthought, and that's entirely possible. But I want to assure you today, as we look at the postscript today, in verses 22 to 25, this is not an afterthought of the writer, but actually something very planned. The writer set this up deliberately, and I believe he ended the letter officially back in verse 20 with his benediction, and here he deliberately switches gears, and he adds this last bit for us. So it's Neither an afterthought, nor is it any less significant than what he wrote in the body of the letter. And we would do well, beloved, to remember that everything that we read in the Bible, descriptions, greetings, even editorial comments by a particular biblical writer, it's all inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? Every last jot and tittle, every last letter. We do believe in plenary inspiration, which is inspiration of the entire corpus of biblical, uh, the biblical text. And salutations and final words such as these are by no means exceptions. The question that we should ask ourselves is what does the Holy Spirit want us to know beyond the obvious? The obvious meaning that the writer is obviously personal and pastoral here. He He had a relationship with the leaders of this church and and possibly other leaders nearby that would hear this letter or or maybe have it read in their churches as well. Uh, He wanted to be remembered to them. He was personal. What is the Holy Spirit really teaching us, though, through these words? I see in this short text 
at least four important principles for all Christians to practice in their relationships with both believers and unbelievers that the writer, the writer models for us here. Four important principles that we need to practice in our relationships. And I'll introduce them to you by first reminding you that the writer was most likely a pastor. He was a pastor who shared even some of the shepherding responsibilities of this local church that he built up just verses ago, the leadership that he built up and encouraged just verses ago. He certainly takes the position of a shepherd by writing such a letter as this. He assumes the position really of a biblical counselor as well, with the goal in mind of helping drifting believers return to apostolic truth with a robust loyalty to Christ that would motivate them to live out uh, uh, their Christianity aggressively in the midst of all kinds of difficulties. That's what he does. And here is where we see just how practical the entire letter is for those of us who are in similar positions of influence for godliness in the lives of other people. I wonder if you might know what the writer has in common with parents, with spouses, with teachers and coaches, with pastors, and and every Christian for that matter that faces the the task of one anothering. Give up? I'll tell you. He and they are in a position to influence others for godliness. That's why. He and they have the potential to be a blessing to others within their sphere of influence. And so do you. The writer talks practical theology with his readership by means of letter writing. And it can be very effective, which is why we have the Bible in print, by the way. In fact, some of you may remember, uh, or a few of you, I'm sure, may remember Herb Ehrenstein. Uh, Herb Ehrenstein was the Bible answer man for Songtime Ministries in in New England, John DeBrine's outfit. Both are with the Lord now, and both are fellowshipping like they never have before. Herb had a letter-writing ministry. He was a great correspondent, and he had a way with words. I still have many of his letters. If you ever received one of them, which were single-spaced, typewritten on both sides, and went on for pages... You know what I mean. They read as if he were sitting right next to you talking in your ear. And I remember very vividly receiving them and being so encouraged in my faith. They always came at the right time. In fact, they came every week, uh, once a week to be precise. When I lived with him my last year of Bible college, I used to hear him in his office. The door was shut, but you could hear him typing away to others on his old Smith Corona manual typewriter. His pounding away sounded like an automatic machine gun, and he got as much delight in composing them as those got reading them. And maybe writing letters or emails is your main medium of communication and influence, or maybe it's phone calls. Maybe you like to open up the Bible with others, mostly in person, sitting next to them. And and I don't mean only in a formal setting, like in a Sunday school or some kind of classroom lecture, but as Titus did. Do you remember how Titus taught doctrine? 
he taught others what was in accord with sound doctrine. That means that we will help others to make important decisions, uh, giving them biblical principles in the need of the moment, Ta uh, talking over a backyard fence or in a grocery store parking lot or during a drive, uh, um, during a drive in the country or, or maybe at the beach. Whomever you instruct and whatever your medium to do it, you have to take the necessary step and help that person plan for godliness. What do I mean by that? Sounds rather involved. Well, it is to varying degrees. I mean, you don't leave the one that you instruct hanging in midair. That's what I mean. You don't say, hey, what you're doing is, is, is not right or, or good for you, Bill. God wants you to do this. Now go to it. See ya. You know, that kind of thing. You see, beloved, giving Christians the knowledge to carry out godliness in their particular area of weakness is only half the process. You have to help them to implement it, to practice it until it becomes second nature for them. Now, without that second part of the process, the hope of them ever maturing in this area is really dead in the water. It's like leaving a person alone with a gun to protect herself in case of intruders, but not showing her how to implement it in the, in the safest and best way possible. You've not helped her. If I, if I brought a whole supply of vitamins and supplements for you, uh, to take together with a list of healthy foods for you to eat and leave you with it, you likely will not know how to implement all of it. And as most people do, you'll probably revert to your old unhealthy habits of eating because that's what's most comfortable to you. I need to help you to put a schedule together when to take your vitamins, when to take the supplements, which supplements do you take with the vitamins, and which ones do you take by themselves. The same with the food, which foods go best together to be nutritionally balanced, how many meals to eat and when to eat them, and so on. And this is part of discipleship that a lot of younger Christians seem oblivious to, probably because they've been influenced by our culture to shun some kind of accountability, or any kind of accountability. But training is so important to the sanctification process. And Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 4.7, train yourselves to be godly. Now that's a command because godliness doesn't come easy for us. We have to train to be that way. At the very least, we need to set up those that we help for success, for spiritual success. Now, I want to show you exactly how the writer does this. In our text this morning, he sets his readers up for spiritual success, and he includes himself in the process. He helps them to plan for godliness. And according to what we have before us in verses 22 to 25, there are, as I say, at least four steps. I call them principles, call them steps, whatever helps you to understand them best. There are four steps that we should take with those that we are teaching or counseling or encouraging or helping with biblical instruction. Remember, in, in any kind of relationship that we have, either with believers or unbelievers, 
we are in a position to influence their lives for godliness. We might evangelize them. We might edify them. And when we do, it's very important what we do next. So, having said that, let's look at these four steps. Number one, this is what we need to do for sure. We need to urge them, urge them to bear with your words of encouragement. Urge them to bear with your words of encouragement. Verse 22, brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. For in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. Now let's back up for a moment and understand that the letter to the Hebrews is really the writer's attempt to encourage these Jewish Christians to godliness, to encourage them. Now, you've spent nearly two years with me studying this wonderful epistle, and I wonder, is encourage the word that you would use to characterize this epistle? The writer does. He actually says so himself, my word of exhortation. That really means encouragement, and exhortation is an encouraging word to others. Kistemacher makes this same observation in his commentary in the book of Hebrews, quote, the epistle to the Hebrews indeed is a word of exhortation written by a dedicated pastor who watches over the spiritual well-being of his people, end quote. Now we know that the writer breaks at many points throughout this letter to show his readers how they should apply his teaching. Many times he does this. The fact that, that it's a letter, just that it's a letter communicates his personal touch as a pastor. He sends them not a theological treatise, but a, a heartfelt letter that he obviously put a good deal of thought into. It was, for, from his point of view, even brief, if you can believe it. That's what he says. And that's probably because it, it was supposed to be read in an assembly and it could be read under an hour. I want you to notice that this letter that the writer himself calls a word of encouragement is something that he urges them to put up with. Did you catch that? Put up or bear with my word of exhortation or encouragement. The Greek word behind this phrase, to put up, essentially means to suffer through something. You know, we tolerate it. We suffer through it. Actually, the NIV has the best rendering of it out of all the translations. Bear. Bear with me. Bear with me. Suffer through what I have to tell you. Give it a chance. And I guess something close in our modern vernacular would be take it. Take it. Take it like a mature believer. Now, why would anyone have to put up with a word of encouragement? Did you ever think about that? I did. Words of encouragement are a welcome word, right? Well, you don't have to bear up with encouraging words. You don't have to suffer through them. Isn't that the common understanding? They're shots in the arm when we're down. Here's how the sage put it in Proverbs 25, 11, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word fitly spoken. Mm. Sounds yummy. That doesn't sound like anything, of course, that we would have to put up with. So what's going on here? 
How do we explain this? Well, if you're thinking that way, and many Christians certainly do, it's likely because your idea of encouraging words and God's idea of encouraging words is not quite the same. Sorry. We've all grown up in this world um, no doubt thinking similarly about what it means to encourage someone. Usually it's telling the person what he wants to hear, whether it's true or not, right? Praising him as much as possible. Even minimizing his problems by telling him that, well, he's not so bad as maybe others think he is or that he thinks he is himself. Or the situation is going to get much better. You'll see, as if we could even know that, right? Always sound positive. And whatever you do, stay away from any words that are negative. But this is not biblical encouragement at all. You don't have to bear with that. You don't have to put up with that. That's easy to hear. No, biblical encouragement is very different. Uh, I hope to encourage, if we hope to encourage others in a godly way, then it demands that we give them information that is truthful, honest, and even streamlined to fit their particular situation. How does Paul, how does Paul encourage people in the church of Lystra and Derby? Well, in Acts 14, he tells them, we must go through tribulation to enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow, that doesn't sound too positive. No, but it's truthful. It's something they should expect. And, and it's actually something that's a good thing because that means that they're standing for their faith. There's no sugarcoating going on here. He tells it like it is. How does Peter encourage us? Well, he tells us in doing good to endure, to, to, uh, I'm sorry, he tells us to suffer in doing good and to endure it because that is commendable before God. To this you are called, he says, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. That's Peter's way of encouraging you. Paul told the Corinthians that the very thing, hardships, which caused them to lose heart in ministry are actually the very thing that should prevent them from losing heart. Why? Because God sent them hardships by a stroke of his mercy. Mm. Hard to hear, but true and very helpful. That's 2 Corinthians 4.1. Now, I don't mean to suggest that biblical encouragement is all about hard truths that, that are hard to hear, but nevertheless true. No, it would include them, though, if necessary. And telling others what God wants them to hear can sometimes be very difficult for them. But someone says, well, what about the fitly spoken word in Proverbs 25.11 that are like apples of gold and settings of silver? Well, that verse doesn't teach us that words fitly spoken, which are words that are needed, should ever be sugar-coated. That's just the way people today prefer to interpret that voice, verse. rather. You need to read the context. Read, they're going to read into it, of course, their idea of encouragement, but the context is very clear that fitly spoken words are truth that even correct that even set us straight. You say, how can you be sure of that? Well, the parallel verse after it, verse 12, says so. Like an earring 
of gold and an ornament of fine gold is the rebuke of a wise judge to the listening ear. Wow. I stand corrected. (laughs) Well, that clears things up, doesn't it? If words of encouragement, which are words fitly spoken, that is, they fit the need of the moment, include wise judgments that correct and maybe even rebuke, then I think that we can agree with the assessment of the writer of Hebrews that his letter is indeed a word of encouragement. He not only intersperses practical admonitions between his teaching, but he includes some very hard sayings about apostasy, about their drifting, that this congregation certainly needed to hear in hopes that they would snap out of their spiritual torpor. Chapters 6 and 10 come to mind most immediately. J. Adams makes the point in his commentary on Hebrews that encouragement is not all sugar and spice, but includes truthful words that are often hard to take. The body of Christ needs to know them, and it needs to take them like medicine. The world knows something of the truth of what I'm saying, even though it downplays tremendously uh, this, 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 this important aspect of encouragement in every aspect of human relationships. It's even coined a, a saying to express it. Here's the saying. The truth hurts only once, but a lie hurts every time you remember it. Now that's not from the Bible, but it's pretty true. Telling someone that he is a sinner or faltering in his faith, or being influenced by the world, maybe neglecting God-given responsibilities and, and so on, is a truth that he needs to hear. And we would do him a disservice if we kept that from him. So, beloved, when you're going to encourage someone in the faith with what you know will include a rebuke or maybe a call to repentance or a call to start practicing godliness, and you suspect that he or she might not be so mature as to take it well. Many aren't and many don't. Urge that person to hang in there with you, just like the writer does. Urge them to bear with you, to be mature about it and take it. You say something like, Mary, I've shown you from God's word why you you can be confident even in this time of uncertainty and how how God would have you to proceed. So you need to listen to this passage now. You need to force yourself to avoid your old habits and to put them off and put on this activity of godliness that Paul talks about. It may not sound easy or even logical at first, but hang in there. Maybe hard. Take it like a mature Christian, and you will soon see praiseworthy fruit. I might also point out that suffering through this kind of ministry context, well, it works both ways. It's not just for the disciple but it's also for us disciplers, too. There is much that we who are on the discipling, counseling side have to put up with and take from those that we're helping. We have to be gracious to those who are particularly difficult or rebellious, to be gracious, as God is gracious with us. We have to strive with someone who might slide back into sin. 
because we know what that's like. We need to be patient in our instruction. We need to hang in there with them. And depending on the, the person, the context, the severity of the struggle and the sin will depend on just how much energy we need to expend with them as we hang in there with them. Well, let's move on to number two. Not only do we urge them to bear with our word of encouragement, but number two, we follow up with them at a later date to see how they're progressing. Follow up with them to see how they're progressing in this very word of encouragement that you gave them. Verse 23, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Hmm. The next step that's important to take with someone that you're counseling or discipling or one anothering or helping in some way out of sinful situations or maybe even an unbeliever that you're witnessing to who seems to be interested in the faith is to follow up with them. Follow up with them. Do you realize that nearly 50% of Paul's ministry in the field was following up with those churches that he founded? Circling back to encourage them, warning them, working out the kinks in their ecclesiology. And it was all encouraging work, at least from Paul's point of view. Perhaps just a, a passage out of Paul's missionary journey might suffice to characterize his practice of following up with churches whenever he could. It's out of Acts 14, verses 21 to 22. We read, Then they, that is Paul and Barnabas, returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Strengthening them. The same sentiments are in Paul's letter to the Romans, and that's a church that he didn't start, but he did write to them. You know the book of Romans. A letter, of course, of great instruction and filled with doctrine. Toward the end of that letter, chapter 15, verses 28 and 29, he expresses his desire to follow up his letter with a personal visit to see how they're getting on. He says, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. You know Paul was going to follow up with all that he had to say. The writer of the Hebrews mentions Timothy, who we learn was incarcerated, apparently, no doubt for his faith, as his mentor and friend Paul had been on a few occasions. We're assuming, of course, that this is the Timothy, there is only one Timothy that we know from Scripture, so if this Timothy is someone different, the writer would certainly have given us some kind of indication of that. But the mere mention of his name by itself, without any qualification, would tell us that it's likely Paul's convert and protege, the Timothy. But what's more mysterious than this person's identity more mysterious is perhaps why the writer felt the need to have to bring the famed pastor of Ephesus with him. Why did he have to bring Timothy with him? Now we can't be sure, of course, but if we had to make an educated guess, a safe guess, we'd say that 
It was to facilitate a successful follow-up. That's why. In other words, Timothy, obviously well-known and perhaps even loved by this congregation, as he was a Hellenistic Jew like them, his mother Jewish, his father Greek. But there's something that none of the commentators that I've used in my personal study of Hebrews thought important to mention. And I, and I think this is odd. Timothy was one of the men on call that Paul would send to help iron out troubled churches. Right? When Paul had to bring his brand of encouragement to the Corinthians, and it was some pretty stiff encouragement that they had to bear with, he sent Timothy ahead of him to make sure that they had received his letter well. And then, after spending three years with the Ephesians, warning them of false teachers, day and night with tears, he then sent Timothy to pastor that church for a time. He also sent Timothy to Philippi, maybe you don't remember this, to encourage the saints there. So it would seem that Timothy was no stranger to this kind of follow-up. And he was also experienced in spiritual mending of broken relationships. If we take nothing else from this reference to Timothy in Hebrews, it's certainly a reminder to us that church leadership and anyone in a leadership role who isn't an elder should never do anything alone if he can help it. Never do anything alone in ministry. Take another brother with you when you're doing such important work as follow-up. For sure. My motto, if you will, throughout my entire pastoral ministry has always been never do anything alone. I applied that mostly in contexts where I had a trainee, some man for uh, eldership, or men and women for pastoral counseling, biblical counseling. But there were other times when training wasn't the primary reason, and it was just needed and necessary to have another believer with me to maybe share the workload, or maybe to make observations that I would miss in a particular context, and certainly to be a witness for whatever took place in a very difficult meeting. Jesus sent his disciples out two by two, right? Remember? Two by two. Surely they could have covered twice the ground if they had gone one by one. So why did he send two by two? Three reasons. To establish a sound testimony, if one was ever needed to be given, you know, you had to establish a testimony of eyewitnesses of two or, or three, but also to, uh, for mutual help and encouragement. That's why. Now, what we've gathered so far from the postscript of Hebrews is that it is necessary to urge those in the faith that we minister to and those that we evangelize to bear with our instruction, to suffer through the, the training, bear with the words of encouragement, even though they may hurt. They only hurt once, as truth does. But then you can expect help and healing and change and spiritual victory. We then noted, second, the importance of following up with those that we've encouraged to make sure that they are bearing up well, that, that none has fallen, and maybe we need to undergird them again. Are, are they actually past the point of shock, and are they running well? 
and that's necessary for us to do. We come now to the third step in the process, and that's this. Strengthen their unity with the rest of God's people. So you're going to urge them to bear, bear your words of encouragement, right? Then, um, then you're, going to, you're going to follow up with them at a later date to see how they're progressing. And then number three, you want to strengthen their unity with the rest of God's people. When you're with them, you need to cement this, cement this unity. He says, verse 24, greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. This sounds really kind of natural and light, but there is more here than meets the eye. There is a solidarity that characterizes the body of Christ at large, a unity that comes from faith in Christ. The writer knows this, and he sees it as an important element to mention to those that he's ministering to. Why? Well, because solidarity has to do with the unity between individuals that have a common interest. So for Christians, we call that uh, unity, uh, we call that kind of unity a unique unity. We call it fellowship. Fellowship. And our fellowship, our unity, is organic. The Holy Spirit, who indwells every believer, automatically makes him and her a living member of the body of Christ. It's not anything that we ourselves can create, it's nothing that we can purchase, manufacture. It's only by virtue of being born again that we have this spiritual solidarity with a body. Having said that, the New Testament has quite a bit to say about our responsibility to protect our unity, our solidarity. There is the command, for example, to be of one mind in the truth. The truth is what guides us. It's what helps us to know God's will for our lives. It's the key ingredient in decision-making. We discern God's will by his word on the printed page, not by anything else. It's the foundation of our epistemology. We know what we know because the Bible says so. This is why Satan's goal to disturb our spiritual growth and the unity of the church is so high high a priority on his list. He has several strategies. I I want to consider just a few with you. Because I think it's important that we understand um, how Satan tries to, to detract from our unity, why unity is so important. Uh, perhaps the favorite, his favorite strategy that tampers with the, the that uh, um, detracts from the unity uh, of our, our organic unity and downplays it and hurts it is to tamper with the word of God itself. That's perhaps his most favorite strategy. Uh, out there. It's, in a, it's a, an effective and dangerous strategy because it deals with the source of our life, the source of our, our guidance and, uh, and our fellowship. It is the truth, the word of God. You see, a tyrant might not be able to, to prevent his enemies from drinking water, uh, but he can certainly contaminate the well. And Satan tries to contaminate the well of biblical truth in all kinds of ways, introducing a woke hermeneutic, convincing young postmodern generations that it's okay to have their own interpretation of Scripture, that it's even right 
uh, then it's right to, to have their own individual one, even if it goes against the leadership and elders of a local church. What that really translates into is it's okay to do whatever you want and construe scripture in order to support your lifestyle. So that's a very important strategy. We ought to be aware of it. Contaminating the truth. Contaminating our hermeneutics that allows us to interpret the truth correctly. Here's another strategy against church unity. It is to engender selfish thinking. It's to throw those rogue thoughts your way. They get lodged in your brain and they start to fester there. And before you know it, you're thinking very selfishly. You're not thinking, you're not others oriented. You're yourself absorbed. James all but castigates his church because they are selfish and greedy. We read in James 4, verses 1 to 4, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they not come from the desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You don't have because you do not ask God, and when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you would spend what you get on your own pleasure. This is selfishness at its best. Once leaders start warring with each other because they're selfish and have their own agendas, the church is doomed. They no longer consist of a united whole, but they have degenerated into a loose association of warring tribes, as one of my mentors used to say. Here's another strategy against church unity by Satan himself, it's to introduce hero worship. You're pretty familiar with this, hero worship. Paul dealt with it in Corinth. Christians develop an affinity for a particular Christian leader to the point where they actually all but worship this guy, or girl as the case may be, and those with their own faith heroes begin to war against each other, claiming that they have the better man. Now, What's so ironic about this whole thing is that the actual men who are being revered are themselves not at odds with each other at all. Isn't that the way it, it, it usually is, right? Christians not only have their favorite preachers and Christian authors, but they can become so fanatical about them that they become tribal. Tribal. Tribalism. You've heard of that? Tribalism? It's the behavior and attitudes that stem from strong loyalties to one's own tribe or social group. We see a lot of tribalism in our country. And our American society is motivated by cultural tribalism. It's a sad thing when that comes into the church and affects the church. Now one last word about hero worship. If any one of those Christian personalities should drift... His loyalty, his loyal disciples will drift right along with him. And if it's not specific men in the ministry that these people hail, then it's a movement. A movement. In all my years of ministry, I have not seen one Christian movement, not one beloved, that started out with right motives and didn't degenerate into something less than godly. Not one. I've been around a while. They all go the way of all flesh, eventually. They do. Harvard University, Yale University, those are like some stark differences, right? 
And then evangelical movements that actually hurt the unity of the church rather than help it. Promise keepers. The seeker movement. The emergent church movement. They're all gone now. Not surprised. Something else replaced them. And are also going the way of all flesh. And now there are certain leaders of the gospel coalition, dare I say, that are proponents of the critical race theory and have gone woke. I never understood, beloved, the need for movements in the Christian church, or in the Christian faith, or the need for parachurch organizations for that matter. God ordained none of it. Do you realize that? You can look, you can look all day, all night, you can look forever in the Word of God, and you will not find in the New Testament one mention of a parachurch organization. What do you find? The church. The church. He ordained the church. So why not work and make one's local church all that God calls it to be? Why do we need to set up a parachurch organization which supposedly helps the church be what it is, but eventually starts doing part of what the church should be doing? I am not aware of any parachurch organizations, by the way, that ever existed much before the late 1800s. At least on a personal one-on-one -on -one level with another saint that we relate to, let's make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The unity. One last strategy that I'll mention that can hurt the unity of the church if believers let it is the physical persecution leveled against them. This is also a tactic of Satan. Uh, it's, not very, it's not as subtle as the others that I've mentioned and has actually been known to have the opposite effect, much to the irritation of Satan himself, we know from the book of Acts and in church history that when severe persecution is hurled against the church, what happens? The church grows. Acts chapter 11. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. Persecution can spread the church around even more and strengthen it. Tertullian's famous quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, right? Said way back in the third century. It's true. It is a keen and timeless observation. But let's not think that persecution is a walk in the park. It's not. Plenty of Christians avoid it like the plague, and sadly, at the expense of obeying Christ. And that's when it'll have a bad effect on the unity of the church. You know, Jesus blesses his followers who endure persecution for his namesake, which means that it's indeed a trying thing for Christians. We're not saying it isn't. If Christians handle it right, it can be a growing thing. If they handle it wrong, it can detract from the unity. It has the ability to reveal, though, someone's true colors. It reveals the difference between genuine believers and false believers, since false ones will not put up with much for something that they don't really embrace. Well, now we've recounted the major strategies that Satan uses to disrupt the unity of the church, and there are others. But the point here is that 
The unity of Christ's church, which is organic to us, is something that we need to nurture and protect. We're not islands. We don't live alone. Faith is a public thing. We belong to a body. Paul explains this to the church in Ephesus. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Why is it good to promote and cement the bond of unity in the minds of Christians who face hardship or might be drifting because it is a powerful tool of grace. That's why. A powerful tool. It reminds us that we are not alone in our fight. We stand together with others in the body of Christ for the same things. We pursue the same primary goals. We feed on the same divine truth, have the same blessed hope, anticipate and long for the same kingdom. And the stronger, uh, and, and, and we are stronger, rather, when we are together. That's why we belong to a body. And even if you're alone in your struggles against sin, you know, 1 Corinthians 10.13, that many, many other Christians have endured the same kind of trials and have come through it victoriously. No trial has seized you except what is common to man. Rehearsing the truth of organic unity with those Christians who are waning in their faith will be a great encouragement to them. Great encouragement. Yes. Urge them to bear up with your encouraging words. Urge them to do that. Follow up with them to make sure that they are bearing up and that they are applying. Strengthen the ties they have with the body of Christ, preserving and cementing the unity in the bond of peace in their minds. And then finally, here it is. Pray. Pray that they find God's grace sufficient. Pray that they find God's grace sufficient. Verse 25, grace be with you all. We hardly need to be convinced ourselves, or to convince ourselves rather of this step. It's quite natural and normal for us to pray for those that we are ministering to. And our prayers are for the immediate context. Now, the writer has already prayed officially for them back in verses 20 and 21. That is his official benediction. He asked God to bless them in every, or in very specific ways. This time around, this time around, he doesn't get so specific. He prays that they know God's grace in their struggles. And beloved, that really says it all. We don't do anything apart from God's grace, right? Nothing. We are saved by grace. We live the Christian life by grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. He gave us heaven when we deserved hell. That's grace. He outfitted us for the Christian life, which is also grace. He gave us what we need to run well to fight the good fight. Prayer, the Bible, the church body, the indwelling Holy Spirit, his sovereign decrees for us that we cannot know, but know that they are for our good. The Lord's Supper are all means of grace. God works through these means to give us what we don't deserve, like strength and comfort and spiritual fortitude and vitality to run well. 
Paul learned this in the heart of apparently one of the most difficult trials in his life. God's grace, he learned, was sufficient for the tasks at hand. Four steps to take with those that we help, both believers and unbelievers. Urge them to bear with your words of encouragement. Follow up with them at a later date to see how they're progressing. Strengthen their unity with the rest of God's people. Of course, this doesn't apply to unbelievers. That one doesn't. Pray that they find God's grace sufficient. I hope, I hope you're challenged today in your, in your particular position of influence over the people in your life for godliness, whoever they may be. Kids, grandkids, siblings, parents, friends, acquaintances, co-workers. To see them through your instruction and then giving them some kind of plan of action to provide some sort of oversight and follow up with these four steps. And as we do and as you do, may God grant both you and them a fruitful yield. Father, we are so grateful for this timely word that comes at the end of a grand letter, a personal letter from the heart of a pastor who cares for your people. And because you care for us, you had preserved it down through the centuries that we might have it and read, that you might speak to us directly through its words as well. And now as we sign off from this great letter, we are reminded of our responsibility to not only apply the things that we have read and studied in this great epistle, but our responsibility to help those who may be drifting, certainly to challenge unbelievers who are on the cusp of conversion. We pray, Lord, that we will, we will engage them with encouraging words of truth, God's truth, your truth, from the word, and that we will be conscientious to follow up with them, that they may know we mean business, that they may know we care for them as you care for them as well, and that we might see fruit born as a result of our interaction with them for your glory, for their good, and for the good of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.